think relationships are key. Earning, earning your right and, and earning your way is hard in proving that you've got a, a good work ethic. I said before, both, I was very lucky that I grew up in an environment, Northwest England, where you, you kind of, everybody, I felt like everybody just worked really hard. Certainly my parents did and, and the rest of my wider family. And, and then I was lucky again that I went into a, a working class environment at, at Sales Sharks, even though a lot of the rugby union players back then, and still to this day, I suppose in the UK, are private school educated and there's a perception that they don't work as hard. I think that myth's gone now that they, they do work bloody hard. Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Hi, I'm your host, Jack McLean, and today my guest is Paul Devlin. His key topic is how to use data to drive decision-making in high-performance sport. Paul has over 20 years' experience at almost every layer of the sports industry. He spent 10 years as a professional rugby player across Europe before, before pivoting into high-performance coaching where he managed staff in sports science, sports medicine, and strength and conditioning departments. Paul has consulted to many sports technology companies across the last 10 years and also has an extensive executive coaching experience. Paul had an MBA from AGSM in Sydney and is currently studying LLM International Sports Law in practice at Sheffield University in the UK. Highlights from today's episode, what practitioners need to do if they want to work in elite sport, why internships must increase interns' employability and work ethic, why athletes and staff need to be obsessed to win to reach, realize your potential. Let's get into today's episode with Paul. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for jumping on, Paul. Thanks for having me, Jack. Appreciate it. Yeah, looking forward to our chat and um, take us back to the very beginning, mate. As you meant, I mentioned in the intro, professional player for, for 10 years there. At what age did you discover you had a, a talent and a, and a passion and drive to, to be an elite athlete? Yeah, so uh, thanks for the intro. It's a very humbling intro. But I um, grew up in, obviously I'm in Australia now, but grew up, as you can tell from the accent, um, northwest or hopefully I still got it, northwest England, um, witness just outside Liverpool, and so for anyone listening who, who grew up there or knows anyone who grew up there, it's rugby league and football, you know, mm-hmm. as in soccer in, in Australia uh, and America. And they, they were the games we played. Not really rugby union back then. I'm old enough that uh, rugby union wasn't really the thing back then for most people, unless you went to a posh private school. I wasn't good enough at football, unfortunately, much as I really wanted to be a big Everton fan. Um, but I was pretty aggressive uh, and, and willing to work really hard. I had good mentors and both my parents are exceptionally hardworking. My uncle Kevin um, over in Ireland had played rugby. My dad had played rugby. Uh, my dad was my coach growing up. Um, but to be totally truthful, I, I didn't get many accolades really. I mean, I played rep teams and whatnot um, growing up, but it wasn't until I hit about 17. And, uh, and my dad asked me to try rugby union. I remember at first going, no way, I'm not playing rugby union. I had only gone professional a few years before uh, and I played a few games and I got so lucky. Like, I, a, a local scout had been watching uh, and he picked me for the for the kind of regional team in, in Lancashire and then I got picked for the north of England and then I ended up playing for England, the under-18s, um, and, and I'd only played like six games of rugby union in my whole life. I did not know the rules um, particularly well, but I found that I was a bit more physically developed than, than some of the guys there. It was very early days in professional rugby union and 
and very fortunate to play for England in, in that tournament and, and sell Sharks in the English Premiership offered me a three-year contract to go full-time professional after after college. And so I'm 18, just about turned 18 and uh, I jumped in and went full-time professional with sell Sharks. And it's funny looking back now, catch up with that team, some of the people out of that team still to this day. And there was no academies back then. There was no real development programs. It was, all right, Paul, you're a man now getting there. And no, professionalism was a little bit different. Than it is now, and and I basically jumped in with um, with a, a bunch of men who'd only themselves gone full time professional the year before because rugby union had only changed, and you know some very smart guys in there. There was lots of lawyers and doctors and whatnot who'd now become professional rugby players. But it was uh, it was a very different environment for a, for an eighteen year old than it is today. Uh, but yeah, very exciting time for me and my career. I was very fortunate that my career progressed from there. It wasn't all positive at all. It was. Probably, I'd look back, say, mostly challenging and, and recovering from failures or what I perceived as failures. Other people might have thought I was doing really well, but to me, I probably never never achieved my potential. I was very lucky and fortunate to play in some amazing places, but um, it, I think it's hard when you finish playing. I haven't played for 10 years and you look back and it's hard to justify whether it was a success or not unless you won lots of grand finals. And I, um, yeah, a bit harsh on myself. That was how it started, Joe. Yeah, great uh, experience, like you said, for as an eighteen-year-old, wide-eyed to get thrown straight in the in the deep end, so to speak, and uh, and just mm. work it out. Looking back now, in terms of now having hindsight that you worked in the career that you have, do you think that passage of your uh, athletic career set you up with like fundamentals of, of resilience to handle high pressure and um, working in a, in an environment like high performance sport? Yeah, no, no question, and so. My career from there, sale progressed. I went back to Super League. I went over to Ireland and was very fortunate to play at Munster for three years. And we had an amazing time over there. And then I went and played in the top 14 in France for a bit and then came back to the UK. Um, and, and I was hit by challenges up all over the place there. Challenges with, I actually think, looking back, and I've said this before to teams I've coached, um, I've been fortunate but unfortunate as a player in that, I had experience as, as um, you know, the young player in the team who's mm-hmm. been identified as talented and, and been thrown in to see how, see how he goes. Uh, the player who's played regularly, the player who's not playing regularly and isn't quite sure why or the coach doesn't like me. I've had that experience too many times. I've had a um, player who's injured. I had nine knee surgeries and retired when I was 29 because of knee injuries. Um, well, yeah, mostly knee injuries. But so been that guy, two ACLs, two microfracture surgeries. And so the recovery from them is is an experience that mm. I think um, allowed me to. Sh- I was married and I'm married to a to a physiotherapy a physiotherapist from sport as well. And so the accumulation of those experiences when I did move into strength and conditioning, as well as the resilience that you noted earlier, it definitely helped me feel like I, I could connect to whatever layer a player was at and, mm. and have a genuine appreciation of at least my experience of how they might be feeling. And um, I definitely think that helped me as I kind of moved into the strength and conditioning world. It's very different in, say, France as a comparison in, in how they prepare athletes as opposed to Ireland, as opposed to England or um, Australia. So, yeah, lots yeah. of experiences definitely helped me. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually good and probably a little bit off topic, but the different um, ways that, you know, teams and countries and cultures prepare for performance, yeah. like h- how do you sort of adapt as, from an athlete's perspective to maybe something that doesn't resonate with you straight away, but 
to have that open mindset to, okay, well, I'll see this an opportunity to learn as it's different. Yeah. Um, and have you had yeah. moments, you know, maybe early on in your career where that had surprised you where a different way actually worked quite well? Yeah, it, it's so pertinent to me, that question, because I was playing in France in the top 14 and it, it, it's a massive league. But I, I went over there for a month after we'd won the European Cup uh, and, and signed for a team. It was their first year. So in France, the, 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 the towns, the village, in my case, Albi, um, when they get promoted, it's like it's the whole town, the whole village. Mm. You know, one cool thing is all the local wineries provide wine for the players, which is lovely. But <laughs> I was playing in France and, and I'd gone from Munster who, well, I'd gone from Super League where there was a, a level of professionalism. I thought players have been full-time professional for a long time. Uh, went to Munster where they were still kind of learning it, but it was full of like the most elite players, incredible uh, internationals. The majority of the team was internationals or British Lions um, and they, but they were still learning like what is full-time professional environment like in, in Munster at the time. And so I felt like, a, you know, I was able to help them a little bit in that respect from my experiences, even being young. And um, then went to France and it was like, wow, this is so different. Like in France, I walked, turned up to the first gym session and the gym was locked. And when I got in, there, were, there wasn't two sets of dumbbells the same way, you know, and I was wow. like, what? I could not believe it. And um that was where I first encountered strength and conditioning, actually, because, you know, I'd had some good strength and conditioning coaches, a guy, Marty Hume, uh, helped me. He was at Sail Sharks. He was a massive influence on me um, as a player. I still speak to him today. still take his advice today. But what started happening was a lot of the foreigners, I couldn't speak French particularly well at the start. So talking like the Canadian boys, South Africans, uh, Welsh lads over there at the time, um, they were a bit frustrated by the training because it was play to train rather than train to play. So everything was just, let's play a game, put tackle suits on and belt the hell out of each other for 60 minutes. Like the night before a game, we would play a 60 minute game, 13 on 13, even though it was Rubinian, no kicking, just belt each other. And, uh, you know, I was, at the time, I got to say, I probably whinged nonstop. It was no wonder the coach particularly liked me, but we never did conditioning to me. Like at Munster, they used to, they used to run us hard. Um, we had a, a really good strength and conditioning coach there, Damien Mednis, uh, Australian guy. And so... He'd run us, he'd run us hard. And I went over to France and they never did run it, ever. We had a, a S&C coach who was actually, I found like one of the French sprint coaches. So I'd wondered why his speed sessions were so good, but that's all he cared about. No gym work, gym was optional. And so I started running sessions for the players. You know, I was Googling, I was going back, plagiarizing the hell out of people like Ashley Jones, Kelvin Giles, anyone who put anything on the internet, I was downloading it and copying it. And um I started running sessions. I was running gym sessions, but mostly I was running conditioning sessions uh, twice a week for a top 14 rugby team that I was playing in. <laughs> wow. and, um, what a unique experience. What was cool. Yeah. So some of the players started saying that they felt like it was helping them. They felt like they were a bit fitter. And um, so then I moved back to the UK and uh, I, I did a master's degree. I started a master's degree at St. Mary's University in London and um, in strength and conditioning science and, and, like I've got to say at the time, I wasn't earning a great deal of money when I came back from, from France. And, and I really thought this investment in my career would be, would be a good opportunity. Well, it didn't feel like work to me running conditioning sessions. It was, you know, gym sessions. It was so much fun. Mm. Um, I had my wife there doing a master's in sports physiotherapy at the same time. So I was learning a heap around um, corrective exercise and how to improve, say, running mechanics or movement in the gym, how to correct poor postures. Um, that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, I, I think I realized at that point I had a really big passion for helping people. Like I got a real pleasure in that team environment of 
scrum half, Morgan Williams coming to me and saying, I feel a bit fitter now. And I wasn't testing or anything. I wasn't running a proper program. We were, we were doing it to try and help ourselves. But him saying, you know, I actually feel like I've really benefited from these sessions. And they were Ashley Jones's sessions. They weren't mine, but I was running them. And so I was starting to feel like this would be great. It feels good to help people. Rewarding. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's like the end of the day, I'm standing holding a whistle if I'm not running myself. And, and so, yeah, I went about exploring the theoretical side of it. How do I write a session as good as him? Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to potentially do this as a job. And that was, that was kind of how my strength and conditioning career started, to be honest, doing a lot of work for free for, for a lot of different teams. Wow, that's got to be up there, if not the, the uh, most unique S&C story I've ever heard, I reckon. It, it, <laughs> it definitely the, uh, fairly different from a, um, someone who wanted to be an athlete, didn't work out and became an S&C. You actually were a pro athlete at the time um, and, and stepping up and, and helping out the team in, yeah. in filling a hole. So that's uh, that, at yeah. that moment, obviously you're putting all your energy into being the best athlete you can be, but it sounded like you started to fall in love with, with something at, uh, at a slightly different angle. Is that where you start to think, oh, maybe the coach's hat, obviously you're doing your master's, so you're thinking a little bit further on from your career as an athlete at that point? Yeah, definitely. And, and then I moved back to the UK and I played at a club. I just loved it, Cornish Pirate, which is in the second tier of English rugby. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a, a coach who, quite frankly, was probably too good for us. Actually, we had an amazing bunch of players. One of my fondest memories uh, at, at times in, in that three-year period. Uh, Chris Sterling was in New Zealand. He was ended up coaching with the All Blacks coaching group uh, a number of years later. Phenomenal coach. Um, but I was playing over there, and this is an interesting story, actually, about how I eventually landed my first S&C gig. I, um, I was invited to play in a World Sevens tournament in Italy with some of the other players. And so we flew over to Rome and it was, you know, basically a, a really good guy, a wealthy businessman who pulled in a load of players in the off season to play in this tournament and kind of enjoy it and see how we go. So we weren't exactly, you know, ultra professional, but ironically, Alex Natera, who's, uh, you know, incredibly good standing edition coach, he helped me early in my career because he helped me get onto the master's degree. Um, firstly, at, at St. Mary's. Um, and then he also was the strength and conditioning coach in this team when we were oh, away right. in Rome. And long story short, we get to the semi-final, get to the final, and I went to put a crazy sidestep on and did my ACL a second time. And mm-hmm. uh, this, was, this was two days before preseason started at my club. And so I was now in a really poor position. So I, I got back, the owner flew, flew back. He lived in Kenya, the owner of the team. He flew back and uh, he just said, you're fired, you're gone. Yeah, a number of, I was in trouble because my wife at the time was on maternity leave uh, with our second daughter. So I had two kids under three and I just lost my job and uh, I had no real, I I was doing my master's, I had no qualifications, I was in a real hole. And uh, through a number of um, strong conversations with the CEO and and the, the, the head coach really went into bat for me. I managed to convince them that I could be an assistant strength and conditioning coach for the year because I was going to miss the season. Um, and that I would, you know, do a little bit on nutrition as well because, uh, you know, I've been studying that and, um, you know, would they just give me a go? I, I was in, in that team, you know, I was paid reasonably well for the group because some of the players even in that team were part-time. But anyway, they, they back, backed me, thankfully. And so I did. I became kind of an assistant S&C whilst I did my rehab. And then amazingly, the, and I loved it and it was great. And I was doing lots of work in the evenings as well. Um, finished it off my master's and then the assistant coach from that team moved up to Doncaster Knight 
he asked me to go with him as the, as the strength and conditioning coach. And so I became a head of strength and conditioning, the head of meaning I was the only one. But yeah, I, I got so lucky, Jack. Um, I, uh, I, was, I was genuinely in a, in a, a trapdoor <laughs> of having yeah. to just go out, you know, as a trade or doing something. Um, if I hadn't landed, it, well, if Chris hadn't helped to convince the CEO that I would, I would add value as an assistant strength and conditioning yeah. coach there. Sliding door moments, eh? Definitely, mate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I always remember it as well when I think about um, how hard it is to crack a career. You know, there's yep. some people I've been helped enormously by some very, very good people over the years. And um, I, I got very lucky, very lucky in that one. And I think about it when I, when I see, you know, young S&C coaches now trying to find their way anywhere I can because I've been there. I know exactly what it's like. Yeah, I guess that's probably a good segue for, for the S&Cs listening in that persisting in trying to get that exposure and they're in maybe community-level programs or state-level programs, semi-professional uh, environments. Uh, what are some advice that you've provided to S&Cs in a mentoring space or, or even S&Cs that you've worked with as colleagues um, to, to keep getting better and, I guess, opening up more doors in elite sport? Yeah, I think uh, relationships are key. Um, earning, earning your right and, and earning your way is hard in proving that you've got a, a good work ethic. I said before, both, I was very lucky that I grew up in an environment in Northwest England where you, you kind of, everybody, I felt like everybody just worked really hard. Certainly my parents did and, and the rest of my wider family. And, and then I was lucky again that I went into a, um, a working class environment at, at Sail Sharks, even though a lot of the be union players back then and still to this day I suppose in the UK are private school educated and there's a perception that they don't work as hard I think that myth's gone now that they, they do work bloody hard but equally the you know that early on in my career the influences were definitely in and around hard work and, and work ethic so I think that's something that strength and conditioning world it's super important in the elite world of sport it's so ruthless that they kind of don't accept people who, who aren't prepared to work exceptionally hard. And I often use the term obsessed. I think you've got to be obsessed with, with your role. Otherwise, it's just not for you. Real, true elite high performance. It's not for everybody. Yeah. And, it, and that's okay. And some careers aren't. But if you truly want to be the best in the world, it, it's going to take a lot of sacrifice. So that's another one. But, but definitely, I think the world has evolved a lot since I started. The ability to, um, to gather information you know, assimilate information and, and learn from different people. You can do, a, a, and again, COVID's probably exaggerated this even further, Jack, but you can have this podcast like we're on right now, right? But video coaching and, yeah. you know, apps like Coach's Eye, so you can review. None of that was available. Like even we talk about something as simple as GPS tracking. I remember when I started, it was a piece of paper, pencil and a stopwatch. And I know that makes me sound old, but it genuinely was like... Um, you had to find a way of tracking progress. And so the opportunities, I suppose on one side, there's amazing opportunities for young S&C coaches to learn. But then there's also conflicting evidence. Back then it was, if it's peer-reviewed research, then you can trust it because it's passed through a process of assessment for whether it's valid or not. Whereas now anyone can post anything to the internet and be an internet guru, right? And yeah. so the, you, have to have that, you have to develop that kind of bullshit filter, um, which is hard as an up-and-coming coach because what, I can remember thinking, well, I don't know who's right here. We've got contrasting views. Definitely, they're kind of the biggest things is um, 
I, another experience of mine from starting off earlier, I think is the same today, is finding a way to survive financially, actually. Yeah, when you're starting out start. and spent the conditioning. Yeah, I was talking about that because we're talking about that off air. I think that'd be a good thing yeah. to sort of shed light on in terms of, yeah, knowing your, your worth. Uh, and I guess there's a certain amount of time where you said it's so competitive and it, and it continues to be competitive at the top. Yeah. So I guess there's an element where not everyone can have job. Um, yeah. So therefore, what's your sort of take on internships, if you like, and, and earning your way from putting in time early on in the career? Like, what, What's your take yeah. on it? Yeah, when I started, they weren't really called internships. It was just, um, I just was a volunteer. And so I just went and helped out with lots of strength and conditioning stuff. And it was purely because I was so passionate about it. I really, really wanted to get better. And I felt like as I was learning more on this master's, I, I needed to experience experience it. And I wanted, to, I wanted that feeling of coaching people and helping improve the way they move. And I wanted to see how they adapted, all of those things. And so that was when I was supposed to doing lots of internships. But as I was sharing to you earlier, that um, there's another side to that as well. Like the first three or four jobs I took, actually, right back to those Doncaster days, where I took that role, I, I kind of knew what sort of salary I would be getting paid, but um, I didn't really care about it. Uh, and, mm. and I was definitely ridiculously underpaid and definitely well into my NRL career over here. Because I genuinely wasn't that bothered by it. And um, it sounds a bit stupid looking back now, but, but I mean it, and it's totally true. I, I really wasn't bothered about what I was being paid as long as I was getting to do what I'd been you know, dreaming for a little while there of doing, and I felt right. like I could help. I always felt like it would, it would work out in the end. And as I've got a bit older now, I possibly look back and think I did myself a little bit of a disservice there and wouldn't be something I'd be recommending to people because... I probably did put my family under a bit of pressure there with um, you know, me at work and being so obsessed with, um, with it. But, you know, we had to move house a lot. I chopped and changed clubs a lot and it's because I was constantly looking at um, how I could Im- improve and how I could take on a bigger challenge and would it be worth it? And never really looking at that. What are you going to pay me? So as the first question, it never was. Maybe it should have yeah. been a little bit. Not the first question, but right up front. Yeah. And then it goes back to internships. I feel like there is no kind of perfect answer here. I think internships, without them, I would never have progressed. There's no, mm. no chance. Without the ability, you know, I'd have, I used to try and pride myself when I was working in the NRL on taking on really, really good um, attitudes as an intern um, and had, you know, even in, in Super League, when I worked at Hull FC, and the girls there progressed on to become a, a head of sports science. Um, Emily Wilson, who worked with us at South Sydney Rabbitohs, instead of, sensational uh, strength and conditioning career after working with us as an intern there. Um, and the, you know, there's lots of them who've, who've gone on to careers. I think if it leads to something, there's a genuine path. I did a lot of work with Tim Doyle at Macquarie University and taking some of his MSc students in. Um, and there's always a pathway to how can we prepare them to be employable? Mm-hmm. You know, so we put a, a genuine learning program in. Alex Natera, I think he also did an incredible job of that at the Giants. I remember going through it with him. Um, and it's not just an internship where you come in and wash shakers. It's an education experience where, yeah, you know what? You might wash shakers. That's okay. I wash shakers too. That's part of running a performance environment, um, cleaning up the gym and whatever else, but making sure that it's a learning journey for them that will improve their employability because they've been in a good program. They've seen what it's like. They've helped to contribute to it. I think there's value in internships there, whether they should be paid 
Ideally, yeah, of course they would be. They'd be at, at least minimum wage. I think everybody would agree on that. But the reality of sport is there's a finite amount of money and, and yeah. hopefully that continues to improve. But that's just life. There's a finite amount of money. And if the money's not available and, and you're of the opinion, well, I'm not doing it then, that's fine. I think there'll always be someone who will. Um, mm. It's just finding that balance between how long am I prepared to do things for free and then when do I actually need to put my family first and, and then a reasonable living. That's that's the question everyone has to be able to answer themselves. Yeah. Yeah, well said. It's such a finicky s- section, but I think I, it resonates with your take on it. At the end of the day, I, I feel the same way. If I didn't do volunteer work, you know, you're not going to be ready to then take on those and, and make an impact at you know, more significant roles, if you call them that, where you do have responsibilities because you haven't put in the time. Um, yeah. You know, So you've got to put practice in uh, and sometimes this that's a matter of volunteer or internships if you, if you call that but as long as the environment's helping people grow then uh, they're productive yeah. opposed to being free labor like you mentioned so uh, well said mate for, for the experienced practitioners listening in um that uh, you touched on in hindsight you would have liked to look after your family a little bit more and, and ask those questions from the finance rather than just you know just oh you beauty i've got the hot points role now or that i've climbed the ladder or i'm at, at a more successful club and, and focusing on that um, which I think a lot of us tend to do rather than focus on the finance side, but I'm sure we can do both uh, and ask both questions. How would you have gone about that differently and um, what would be some, um, I guess, questions that you'd like to ask in that setting before you dive straight into the next role? Yeah, it's probably self-reflection. As I'm getting a bit older, I've started thinking about these things, Jack, to be honest. And um, when someone would approach me about a new opportunity, my, as you can tell, I'm reasonably passionate and enthusiastic. And um I would just think that's an opportunity for me to get better. I can help them, mm. you know, on the, on the times when I chose it, of course. And uh, and so I think I'd, uh, having been a professional player, I probably was very selfish. I was very, very driven. I was absolutely obsessed with trying to be the best I could be. Didn't feel like I had huge success, even though, you know, externally probably looks like I did. Uh, but it felt like it felt like a total roller coaster for me. And I was constantly chasing the dream. Mm. And I, pro- I think I definitely carried that over into my strength and conditioning career in that I desperately wanted to work with groups who were who, who I felt like felt the same way as me. And um, probably in some ways, I look back and I landed in Australia, for example, and worked at Melbourne Storm where that was exactly the environment. Mm. You know, it was, everybody was obsessed. It was just constantly being challenged to get better. Any, any idea was listened to as long as it was going to help the group. If you were prepared to put the team first, you know, they would listen. And so... That, that probably sped up my obsession with getting better. And then I moved on to other clubs where it, it, it wasn't quite like that. And, and mm. so um, I was trying to make it like that. And so I guess what, where I'd come back to is I, I didn't, and it's a fault on me, really sit down and think to myself when I would get opportunities, say, to move and take on a new challenge. And that might sound awfully selfish, actually. It does now, I'm about to say it. But I didn't really think, how, how will this affect or how will this affect my family? I probably just justified, well, I'll work so hard and create such a good um, future for us that they'll, they'll just, they'll be all right. Yeah. You know, and, and I, you know, and they were. So maybe I was right. But I do think if, you know, as I'm getting older and I'm giving advice to people, like just take a breath. Yeah. Just, you know, I heard Sam Burgess on a podcast recently say, um, just pause and look, look it over the horizon. I think that's a good way of looking at it. I think he, he stole that from Russell Crowe and he'd said in the High Performance Podcast with Jay Cumphrey recently, it's a, it's a great quote and I didn't do that well. Um, and I think, would it have changed anything to do? I'm not sure because I don't regret necessarily any decisions, but 
I have through self-reflection identified that my obsession with trying to be with a group that kind of wanted to be on the same path as me and would do anything to get better uh, meant that I, would, I kept chasing, looking for, you know, the next group that matched, I suppose, say, the group that I had at, at Munster that I played with or the group that was like Melbourne Storm, who you just didn't feel like the outsiders were the people, and there wasn't many, who maybe just weren't, this is all I care about. This is my priority in life. Mm. Um, but, you know, the world is changing. Not everybody is like that. Uh, but I, if I had my time again, I'd probably just look over the horizon a bit more when I was making those decisions and whether that leads to a different outcome. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. No, nah, it's appreciate the insight, mate. It's, um, yeah, the open honesty is, uh, yeah, great advice for, for those listening in and, and, um, you know, you never know how, uh, an impact that you might've made on someone now to, to ask that mm. question and look after their family. So yeah, thank mm. you. Looking back over your career, what are some highlights, um, that sort of pop up first front of mind, um, that you look up, look back on the, of, uh, fondly and, and proud of. Yeah, so definitely playing at Munster. Uh, my family are Irish. And my uncle played at Leinster, which is uh, you know, a rival uh, province. I played with some incredible, incredible rugby players at Munster. I was lucky to play in Europe, European Cup. We won it. I was lucky to play in a cup final. And so that was that was a really, really good time in my life. Definitely a career highlight, even though at the time it wasn't it wasn't good enough. Like at the time I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't happy. I look back now and think, what an idiot. But then I talked about the time at the Cornish Pirates and down there, second tier of English rugby, but absolutely incredible group of men and an outstanding coach. Um, mm. And and we had some amazing times there. Uh, yeah, some, some very good people who I keep in touch with. I think coaching-wise then, uh, definitely Melbourne Storm left an enormous mark on me. I'm you know, very, very fortunate to stay in touch with the people there. They, they're just outstanding, outstanding um, business and outstanding sports team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, I think more recently, my second year at the Rabbitohs, actually, we had a, an outstanding group there and some, some very good people. I suppose that's the common denominator here, isn't it? I keep talking about great people um, and that's what, that's what makes great teams. But we got one, one win from the grand final, beaten by the Roosters there. Um, but I, I felt like that team... They'd been that they, you know, they'd been to a grand final and won it in 14. And I felt like the majority of that group were obsessed. Like they were willing to pay the price to win. And we, mm-hmm. you know, we got very, very close to getting to a grand final. And when you're involved with a group like that, um, it leaves it leaves a leaves a mark with you, I reckon. Yeah. And, and the flip side, mate, some significant challenges you mentioned over your athletic career. So I guess from the athlete side, two ACLs and um, like yeah. you said, nine surgeries. Um, but if, there might be some other challenges as well, but also from a coaching perspective, um, what, what have you learned from those challenges when you look back on and how did you grow from it? Yeah, definitely as a player, you, you've nailed it. As a player, um, my challenges were, were injuries and never being happy, which I suppose in some ways is a strength because it pushed me to achieve what I did achieve. But I mean, I genuinely don't reckon I was ever really happy. I played in a cup final. I started on the wing for Munster in a cup final and they brought me off with 20 minutes to go. And I, I refused to have a picture with the trophy because I was like, yeah. nah, I didn't help us win. That's a, and I just think, what an idiot. I'm so embarrassed of myself now looking back. But at the time, I was, I was so disappointed um, and struggled to handle it. And so, you know, I look back and regret that sort of stuff. I regret mm. probably the way I challenged some of my coaches early on. Um, and I take complete responsibility for it. I, the way I spoke to them, I think, someone did that to me, I'd want to give them a clip, you know, and 
I regret that. And then in the coaching world, I think, um, without naming clubs, I probably regret uh, or fact I've learned is a better way of putting it that um, you can't change culture if you haven't got the right people. And so if you haven't got a group of leaders, um, people who are genuinely obsessed with putting the team first and progressing, you, you just can't change a culture and you, and you can't get buy-in to, to change. Um, it, it, and, and that's not criticizing the people. You know, there's different ways of doing things. Maybe it's the way the change is, is discussed. But I think that's a, it's been a really key learning that um, I think over, over my career playing and coaching, I think you can see reasonably quickly within maybe a week or two full-time with them, mm. whether you've got a group who are ready to pay the price. But equally, when you've got a group that aren't, it's very clear. It's very clear that they've got other priorities in life, whether it's, social media or whether it's other stuff. And if you've got a core group of people who aren't truly obsessed with winning, mm-hmm. actually they get more excited about, you know, doing other stuff. Maybe that's okay. I, I've yet to work with a group where that leads to continued success and achievement. Uh, I just don't think a league sport is, is made for that. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy yourself. I don't mean that whatsoever, but I just think your priority has to be your career for that short period that you get as a player. Or for the team. Yeah, definitely. And similarly, that's the pressure of a coach too, is that um, you need to be all in as well. And and, um, and that means making sacrifice, which flies in the face of what I'm saying earlier about thinking about other things. And I don't mean put your work before your family. I, I will say that. I don't mean that. Mm. But you have to be you have to be thinking about it. It's not like other jobs, elite sport and, and high performance. Like I said, it's that Alistair McCaw, I love, I love his work. He writes about this Um being the best is not, or trying to be the best, it's not for everyone, and that's okay. Mm. You know, but if you want to be that, then go all in. Um, so I think that the learnings I've, key learnings as a coach have been around, um, you know, if, it, if you've not got a group who's willing to pay the price, and, you know, they all quote, surround yourself with people on the same mission. Yeah. If you're surrounded by people and you haven't got that group around you who are just as obsessed with, as you about winning and getting better, um, you're in the wrong place. Yeah, and, and tough, tough question. But on that topic, like when you've had, you mentioned, you can sort of tell intuitively within a week or two of being full time. Has there been a program, or, or if there hasn't, with the what, what would your belief be on it, where you feel like the leaders and the majority of the playing group are all in and they're obsessed to win, um, but the football department isn't, or vice versa? Do you think you can still get ultimate success, or do you need the key pillars of staff and the playing group to be? all in and obsessed for, for team first success? Yeah, good question, actually. I, I think if the, if you've got the players and especially the leadership group, yeah, if if they are aligned and and obsessed um, and desperate for success and willing to pay the price um, for success, I think you're 70%, 80% of the way there. And mm-hmm. um, I think we can sometimes overestimate our impact as coaches, actually. Mm-hmm. I think um, at the true elite end, um, I understand and I'm, I'm sure we'll get onto how we can add value physically uh, from a strength and conditioning perspective. But I do think all of the different coaching areas that players, players win games, players win leagues. There's no question. Great picture of um, Jim Radcliffe, a lovely picture I was using presentations. He's one of the great strength and conditioning coaches of our time. And, and his, uh, his college football team is up there winning the trophy and the, you know, the banners going off and, and the celebration. And he's got, you know, he's got the great posture. And Jim stood there right in the background. And I think that picture personifies um, the kind of high performance department. 
you know, our job is to create the environment and give the program and help the athletes to achieve. You know, we don't win premierships as coaches. You don't win a, I never said I'm, I want to win a premiership as a coach. I want to help players win a premiership. I want to win one as a player. When you become a coach, I don't think it's about winning premierships. It's about helping players be the best they can possibly be to win a premiership. So I think the football department, yes, you need, you need strong guidance. Uh, probably depends on the makeup of the group as well. You know, I've, for example, when I talked about my time as a player at Munster, that team, that team led itself because it was full of British Lions and Ireland internationals. So look at some of the players who've come out of it. Paul O'Connell, you know, incredible name. Ronan O'Gara, Peter Stringer, you could go on. And um, that 2006 Munster team didn't need a lot of coaching, really. They, they, they could have run their own show. As long as they knew what time the gym was, what time field was, I reckon they could have coached themselves. But then, you know, in other teams, I'm not sure they could. Same with, um, you know, in the NRL, you can look at the teams who've got such good senior leadership and such good elite players that um, it probably needs a little bit less input from the coaches. So I would say, yeah, there's um, the player that... The players are more important in that respect than than the coaching stuff. Yep, yep, that makes a lot of sense. We better move into your into your topic, mate. Um, and, and probably more specifically in the role that you are now, where you still got the finger on the pulse from, and more from a data technology and consultant space. But um, for those working in sports science, strength and conditioning, high performance roles, uh, how, how do you find data can help inform decision making in those sort of high pressure environments? Yeah, so. I like um, analogies and, and metaphors for this sort of stuff with, with players and other coaches. I think the way I look at the data or consider the data is like the speed dials on your car. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm a big fan of training at, at match intensity or above. And obviously you can't do that permanently. You can't do that for, for the whole of the session. But I definitely think that stands to reason to me, logically, as the mm-hmm. best way to prepare. You know, if we can identify what is the worst case scenario, and when I say worst case, I mean peak intensity. Um, I'm not looking at it from an injury prevention perspective. I'm looking at it from a performance perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we can identify what that looks like, um, how can we train at, at or above it? And so if we, if we can track that sort of data and then that becomes the speed dials on our car. So when we're driving really, really fast down the road, and um, it's not just a straight road, unfortunately. And so we, we need to keep checking the speed dials. Now, if we don't check them at all, then we might go. We might go too fast, or, or we have no idea where we're at. Right? Mm. If um, and that's not going to end well. On the flip side, probably more pertinently, um, if we look at them too much and we obsess over them and we think that they're going to give us all the answers, which they're not, data will not give you the answers. Mm. Um, then you're going to crash, and when you crash, it's going to be it's going to be really ugly. Mm. Um, and so I think you know, data or data, depending on where you are in the world, and. Um, is, is incredibly important. There's, there's, there's a lot of things um, related to it that, that matter. I'm sure we'll touch on, but I think if I was to summarize it, there's probably two sides. I think there's um, the first thing I could touch on there is you need to know what are you asking your team to do? And so I'll probably reference rugby league and rugby union primarily, but what does good look like? So, um, you know, define success before you start. What does good look like? What are we asking them to do? It can't just be, well, we're going to win, right? Yeah. You need to define what does good look like. And a good story I got from Melbourne Storm, Brian Norrie, incredible guy. And um, you wouldn't call him the most athletic person in the world. He wouldn't, but you know what? He was an elite footballer and he was. And he told me this story once around um, when he went to Craig Bellamy and asked him, you know, what, what do you want me to do? Craig came to him and told him what his role in the team was. 
And it was don't get beaten on your inside shoulder, make your tackles and get a quick play of the ball. And Noz wasn't, he wasn't the most powerful man in the world, you know? He wasn't going to be able to just run into people and belt them and get a quick play of the ball. So he had to find a way of doing those three things that Craig wanted. They're only three things Craig told him to do. Mm. So he knew what success looked like for him. Mm. You know, if he was able to achieve those three, so if you multiply that across the team and then you look at the wider game model and philosophy of the coach, the really good coaches know what they want. You know, even mm. you go to football and Jurgen Klopp, for example, at Liverpool and what he's managed to do there. A lot of people forget that after four years, most of the fans wanted to fire him because everybody was injured. Or lots of players were injured and all the rest of it. But he knew what he wanted. He knew where he was going and how he wanted the team to play, defined what success looked like. Mm. And then he had to go about training the players to be able to do it. And if not, getting rid of some and signing some in who could do it. Mm. And eventually he got there and they became completely dominant. So that's one way I think data can be really important there because that can help you to define what it is that you want to be. Mm-hmm. And then you can go about tracking and training it. And then if you go more classical strength and conditioning, I think for direct strength and conditioning, it's how do we measure the adaptation that we're prescribing an overload to create? Mm-hmm. And so your simple max strength measures, simple, you know, all that sort of stuff, also people in the call would, would be well able um, to do. But, but I think it's important because we need to be constantly tracking progress. Are they getting better? Is what we're prescribing working? And then, you know, it allows us to ask ourselves questions like, well, especially at the pointy end, um, not talking about developing athletes, but incremental gain of 1.25 or 2.5 kilos on a bench press, is that going to benefit this player and transfer to the field as much as maybe a 0.2 meters per second um, velocity increase at 80 kilos or 100 kilos bench press? You know, so what, what is it that you're trying to get? You mm-hmm. can only define that when you know what you're trying trying to deliver? What incremental improvement are you trying to make in the athlete specific to what the coach needs them to do? So a lot of that relies on a very clear vision. Um, and, and I think data can help to inform where you are now, where you want to get to, and whether you're progressing um, to get there. It all starts for you know, what do you need them to do? And, and some coaches who aren't necessarily data um, smart or interested, you know, and, so, and that's fine too, by the way. Um, I think find it quite hard to articulate what they want um, in, in a way that is that is trackable. And so then other methods need to be used in mm. that instance. But I think the speed dials of the car is a good way of, of considering how, how and why data can be important. Yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely borrowed that one and um, noted that one down. It's a, it's a good, good analogy for it. Um, for, um, for those wanting to define success and and uh, and build like you talked about the importance of a bullshit filter i guess a filter for what's yeah. there's so much data points now in, yeah. in elite sport which is great but also it can become overwhelming what would be your advice for sports science strength conditioning high performance staff in terms of developing what is important whether it be an adaptation uh, aspect that you're looking for or or for performance on the field uh, how do you go about um having clarity on yeah, help whether it be helping a player develop and what's an important object, you know, objective measure for them uh, or if you're working with the consulting coaching staff? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And a good story around that, I think, defines my thinking on it is around how we track the intensity of a game. And so a um, long time ago now, but I was, I was getting frustrated by... Um, it's actually Craig, Craig Bellamy challenged me once. As a, he used to give me these special projects because he knew I was a bit you know, obsessive around going and trying to find things out. And, and he said to me once, well, we big thing was the arm wrestle. And um, I was saying, well, we practice arm wrestle all the time, but how do we know if we're getting better at it? 
And he was like, mm, good question. Go and find out. I said, shit, okay. <laughs> so, so I did. And I started looking at, well, I started just simply with a paper and pen measuring because I was sat on the bench during games. And when a, an arm wrestle was defined as uh, six, uh, three sets or more back to back without a break in play. As soon as it got to three sets um, from either team, well, obviously, and both teams, that, that was classed as an arm wrestle. And I would track how did they end. I started looking at that and I was like, wow, like Melbourne Storm, we're really good. Uh, when an arm wrestler gets above six sets, we're really good at winning it. I wonder why. Well, probably because they were very fit. They were very well prepared. They had some exceptional leaders, um, Billy Slater, Cam Smith, Cooper Cronk, those guys. But then I started looking at the data around it and how would we track it from a data perspective. And I was looking at the meters per minute and that made sense to me, right? How many meters you complete in a minute? That sounds like the perfect metric to look at. But then I started like, as I was talking to Craig and other coaches, Anthony Seabold was there at the time. It's probably how we first connected actually. And certainly on the data side of it, mm. I was saying, but all the things that you say matter from a match perspective, like getting off the line, uh, carrying the ball as hard as you can, push support. You know, Melbourne should talk about flat and fast and everyone's in play on every play. None of them involve covering a lot of ground in a short period of time, really. There might be like five steps, you know, first three steps off the defensive line, for example, is something a lot of rugby league teams look at. And so I started looking at it and the data doesn't capture the sensitivity of those actions that we say are, are of importance to performance. And so then there was some great research by, you know, there's a great crew, Grant Duffy, Rich Johnson, Jay Stalaney. Heidi Thornton, that crew, who were looking at um, the change in pace. I call it change of pace metric. It's A lot of people call it Axel D-cell measurement. But essentially, all it is looking at is every tenth of a second, what's the difference in speed? And then averaging that over a 60-second interval, 120, all the way from one minute to 10 minutes. And started looking at that data, which is challenging to process. And you have to get the raw data and then process it. But those guys worked it out. It's really interesting to see that that, that was a lot more sensitive not just only to the position in some of the great peer-reviewed research they've put out, but that data set really allowed us to look at um, measuring all those moments that matter. So when you get hard off the line, that was good because then you get hard off the line, you may or may not be involved in the tackle, but then you've got to get back to the line and reload and then do it again. So all of those actions that we value um, from a uh, subjective perspective with the coaching team, um, they, they started reflecting in, in the sort of numbers that we were showing. And then, then it became, all right, now we can track physically what they're doing and whether it's good or not. Then it became from a technical perspective, are they actually able to execute when the intensity is, is at that level? And so, you know, data was, was pretty important there, but as with all of the different data sources that we collect and, and there are a lot um, that are available, a, a big thing for me is in, is in um, accuracy firstly and, and knowing error rates and knowing reliability um, and so from that perspective, you know, there's lots of research out there that can save us time and effort testing on, say, GPS tracking, for example, that we shouldn't really be comparing. We shouldn't be comparing RFID outputs, the GPS outputs, the optical tracking, for example, for player tracking data. And um, Matt Tabin has released some good research on the optical versus GPS, and you just, you just can't compare them. They're different. They're recorded differently. Uh, they're, they're filtered differently. And there's an inherent difference, right? And... Um, then again, we would go to GPS units. It's important to know from the research the inter and intra-unit differences. So we can solve that by making sure we give the same player the same unit every day. And we yep. can take out that little, because when we're looking at these very small um, points of change, it's really important that we, that we account for those, those differences. And um, so, yeah, making sure that, um, that, we, that we 
collect enough information on the reliability and validity, I think is important. When equally things like I love all the Valve devices, you know, they've set up a phenomenal business there. I remember when it first started, it's, it's really, really, really good. And they're making some, they're solving some huge problems actually for S&C coaches in the field and, and physios alike. But it's important that when we do a node board test, for example, that we don't allow that flexion at the hip because I've seen it in front of my eyes. I've done it for a long time, but it affects the output score. And so players, players are smart. Like they're, they're constantly looking for ways to hit high scores because they're competitive beasts. Mm. And so if you allow that flexion at the hip, they'll increase the torque, which will give a higher score. But it, is, it, is it relative? No, it's not because you've not got the lever side as well. And so... Again, standardization of, of testing becomes super important. And again, though, there's some great research out there. Dan Baker's done some great stuff with bands and velocity-based training. He's, he's one of the greats. Um, there's some good stuff out there uh, from uh, Jay Stellani and Rich Johnson and that crew. Um, Grant Duffy around um, inter and intra-unit reliability. And, you know, they're pulling units on sleds to get those sorts of numbers that a lot of, a lot of people don't have time to do. I think, yeah, definitely making sure that um, you're you're applying the correct filters and you know what it is telling you, but equally you know what it's not. You know, there's been over the years, there's been all sorts of technologies and I've seen and some of them that, you, for example, you can do a number of jumps on a force plate and it'll tell you what training program you should do. Yeah. I just don't see the research justifying that sort of statement. Um, and yet, you know, I've been involved in, in meetings where that's been tempted to be sold to me in a club and, I think that's that's part of I think data is super important. But I think we always need to be able to justify with evidence um how and why it works. And 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 then on the flip side, if it's if it's not say a, a software solution, um we need to be making sure that we're tracking intra and into unit reliabilities and, and accounting for them if we can, if we're capable. If we're if we're not, then we can't, you know, only do what we can. Mm. Yeah, yeah, thanks, man. That's a yeah, thorough response and insight into uh, yeah, how you go about the the practical side of of using the data in a real setting. Um, when you went back to Bailey with that, um, uh, you know, trying to quantify how to improve that aspect of the game, the the arm wrestle, did that influence training decisions? Like, like already it was a strength by the sound of it, but how'd that go with decision making going forward? Um, yeah, in that setting, did yeah. it mean you did more of it because it was a, an area that the Melbourne Storm were dominant with? That's a really good and pertinent question, um, and and. And actually, any good high-performance environment, which Melbourne Storm absolutely was then and I believe still is, and they'll listen if you can provide evidence as mm. to why something could help improve. So, um, no, I wouldn't say this contributed to Melbourne Storm winning more games, to be totally honest with you. I'd love to say it did, but I don't think it did. But, but what it might have done is um, provided a, a data point that was trackable, uh, and I, I did it with the clubs I left when I left the storm and, and continued, and it's, it's just one small example of, of a way of trying to track whether we're getting better or something or not. Right. But, um, but it was super interesting and it was a really good conversation starter with, with the technical coaches on, you know, what I really wanted to identify is, and I found it in some of the other clubs I worked at, that when we went five, six, seven, eight sets back to back, we actually physically weren't capable. Mm. What was interesting about a club like that was someone like Cameron Smith, as they got to five and six sets, would often kick the ball. He would raise the speed of the game. I think it's a great quote from Calvin Giles that, yeah, anyone can slow the game down, but only the great teams and athletes can speed it up. And so what he would do is he was able to read the game because he was some sort of superhuman. 
But he was able to see that, and he didn't need me to collect data to tell him, by the way. He knew this way before yeah, I was there. Yeah, yeah that they're vulnerable. And if we raise it now, I know my team's going to go with me. Yeah. I know that they're capable. I'm not sure they are. And, and, and that era of the game, he, he was just as incredibly good at that. And it's a great example to us physically that, you know, he would tell you, all the coaches who've coached him would tell you, um, not necessarily the strongest um, or fastest um, player in the world from a strength and conditioning perspective. Bloody smart, you know, incredibly good um, balance and core stability. Um, but, but he knew that the role for the strength and conditioning team there was get the team fit enough and strong enough to be able to do what he needs them to do. And, and yes, Craig and all the rest of the coaches, but, but it was very clear that's, that's what your role is and then they'll execute it. Mm. You know what I mean? And, and so, yeah. Um, yeah, I think did the data help? It probably helped to crystallize what we were good at. Yeah. Uh, at other clubs I worked at, it helped to crystallize that we weren't quite ready yet. And in some instances, we're better if we don't go on a long arm. You know, you hear often yeah. the commentators say in the NRL, Oh, they want to get them into an arm wrestle. Let's get them into an arm wrestle. At times I'd be thinking, actually, yeah. it's better if we don't because we're not there yet. It takes time to develop really good conditioning. It takes time. Mm. And um, depending on where you're coming from, of course. And at times you're thinking, we're better as a short, sharp team. You know, it's okay. We've got a different strategy, but we're better set piece. For example, yeah. at certain clubs I work that rather than going set for set continual. Um, you look at teams now like, Penrith Panthers, for example, they look like they can do it, both of them, exceptionally well there. Incredible, which is probably why they've gone back to back. Um, but yeah, again, it comes back to what I said at the start. When you know what you want to be, you can then track whether you're getting better at it or not. Yeah, 100%. And I think that that tool was an attempt at trying to do that. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. Thanks for that. That's a, it's a great, great um, way of providing context on how you can apply it and, and the power that it can have. Um, yeah. Is there ever been a, a tech you know, technology in sport, has there ever been a time where you've stripped it right back? Maybe you've consulted S&Cs or sports scientists to do so or, or yourself where um, you found that there was too much being tracked and you weren't actually applying enough of it and, and how did you go yeah. about um, finding what was the most important markers to stick with and how did you then also bin the ones that you felt that weren't really moving the needle? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, actually, it's in community sport or grassroots sport rather than true elite, let's say. Or you could say there are elite grassroots, and it's in, in football and soccer, whereby I was talking to a team who um, they're big sell to me straight away when they find out sort of my background. And, you know, I've been quite passionate about player tracking and I've done a lot of research in that space and, and, and worked with stat sports for a while. But they said to me, this team said to me, um, they were trying to tell me how, how great they were because. Um, they were, they were using uh, GPS tracking on, on 12 and, and 13 year olds. And it was, um, this was the big sell. Look, look how good it is. And as an example, the, the data that they showed me was um, look how good our players are. They're running 7K in a game at 15. And I was saying, okay, tell me how running 7K in the game of football means you're a better player. And they said, well, it's work rate. And I said, okay, but is it? Like, do you know that it's work rate? And the long and short of the story was, as I, as I kind of sat down and, and kind of asked them questions to get to where they were, what they were trying to do, it was because it, it made sense. And they'd read lots of stuff in, in articles from Premier League football managers and whatnot. It's work right, work right, work right. We all know that working hard leads to success. But in the game of football, for example, 
It's about how you, 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 you can pass the ball in any direction. You can't do that in rugby league. You've got to work your way up the field, right? And, and so in football, for example, it's a different game. And so, yeah, if you run to find space, someone can pass the ball to you. But at 14 and 15, the range of passing means that that's quite, not quite possible. And long and short is what we found was that really the more you ran definitely didn't correlate with whether you were playing well or not. And so it came back to, I was saying to them, well, why are you doing this? So they were looking at it from a high performance perspective, less so than a load monitoring tool. Mm. Um, but the truth be told, they didn't really know why they were doing it. They just mm. did it because it looked professional to the parents. That's that's where we got to. Mm. And, and so I kind of tried to help give them some confidence that, that you don't need to do that. What what could we track or what could we do to help help the players improve? And so what they ended up doing it was, was bringing in a, a video session and helping to improve the players' education of how they could use the ball to find space. Um, mm. So I suppose in many ways, I took out the data, the data set for them and, and told them that, you know, I reckon in cons- consultation with the coaches, who were pretty pleased actually, actually educating, education of the players would be better. And that didn't mean that every now and again, a player didn't need a kick up the backside for being lazy. Of course, yeah. that's always the way, but do you need to spend 20 grand on GPS and someone who's got to download it and you know all the rest of it every day to be able to do that? Mm. I don't I don't think you do. Similarly, I've seen um been in on consultancy things to, to to clubs who've got um you know all sorts of 3D tracking and you know some really, really cool things in the gym um that are tracking joint angles and all these great things. But I, I always go back to again, Calvin Giles drives this in, but they weren't coaching. I wasn't hearing coaching cues. I wasn't seeing um players hitting the same positions, say when they did a step up. You know, I wasn't seeing um, toes up, you know, preload the ankle. Yeah, I wasn't hearing any actual coaching. It was down that path of, or, or we're tracking, we're tracking stuff because it's cool and it's fancy, but they couldn't justify why they were doing it. This is probably back to where, where I started again. Um, and if you don't understand why you're doing it and you can't directly show how it's helping you, you probably don't need to waste your time doing it. That's That's often, certainly when I look at, reviewing programs or spending time with people who ask my advice, that's the first question I'll always ask is if you can't justify it with evidence. Um, probably don't, don't bother. Like go and find, mm. find your time doing, doing something better. And I definitely think keeping it simple and um, the lower down the tiers is, is super important. Um, don't have to get everything right. You know, I think mm. keeping it simple is, is really important. But I, again, don't get me wrong. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the use of technology. where appropriate. Yeah. No, that's. I think that's a really good um, advice for for anyone listening in, whether you're a parent or a, a coach. Uh, S and C, like you, 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 and like I've been guilty of it. You, you want the, yeah, what you think is the the best and and the best technology. But if it's not relevant to your environment or your environment's not yeah. ready for it, or you don't really strong on your your purpose, it's um, and the validity of what, what your purpose is to use it, then um, yeah. you might be just getting lost. Uh, at trying totally. to just do a whole host of things. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, what, what about from a um, problem-solving point of view? You touched on a little bit before in terms of you know, increasing the performance um, of, of working out why a team is successful or, or an area of, of Im- improvement uh, for yeah. working closely with tactical coaches as sports yeah. science recognition coaches. What have been some methods yeah. that you found from um, getting them on board? Maybe perhaps at first they haven't had a good experience with a sports scientist in the past because uh, it meant doing less training or whatever the experience might have been. How have you gone about sort of getting buy-in from the coaches to, um, yeah, I guess, believe and trust you in, with, 
or maybe a new you go into a new club or you work with a new assistant coach or head coach. Yeah, uh, excellent point. And and I think I I realised very early on that the job of a high performance coach, strength and conditioning coach, is to help to develop a player to enable them to play the way the coach wants them to play. Mm-hmm. And so I really enjoyed then for that reason working with coaches who who knew really clearly probably come across already, but who knew really clearly what they wanted mm-hmm. in each player at what what's that person's strength? What do you need them to do? And then it's my job to go and find a way to help them do it better. Uh, and that's where the kind of passion enthusiasm comes from. Mm-hmm. Whereas again, Calvin Giles always says, you make sure you write your plans for that in pencil because <laughs> they do, they do change. But an overriding term I'd use is you've got to develop your coaching toolbox or your coaching kit bag, whichever way you, you want to put it. So there's lots of different ways to achieve the outcome that you're after. Um, and one of the, the good ones that I remember thinking, I'll never learn this as a young S&C coach, was coach's eye. Um, and and I invested a lot of time into, cause, you know, you didn't really record things on a mobile phone when I started. And then reviewing back and the ability to go slow more. I remember when coach's eye, the app actually first came out, I was like, wow. I was doing everything with coach's eye to try and um, improve. And I actually remember a funny story. I went out to GWS Giants once for a professional development day. And uh, that because Dan Pfaff was over from the US. Mm-hmm. And um, I've, I've got to say, like, I, I'd, I'd read a lot of his stuff and he had these athletes running and he kept saying, can you see that? And they said to the group, can you see? And I'm like, oh, can he see? I, I think he's running beautifully. This is perfect. And I thought I was a good coach at this point. I was thinking he's running perfectly. And he's going, look at his right shoulder. And I'm like, what? And oh, and I'd say his right shoulder was fixing. He's going to have problems with his left adductor because of that. I'm like, wow. And then, honestly, I was writing, frantically writing notes. And I got home. I reckon it was about a month because I recorded it. About a month after, I actually got all the points he made in 20 minutes. And I mean a month before I had been able to comprehend. It. Yeah. What, yeah. And I was just thinking at that time, Oh dear, like I have I have got nowhere near the coaches. Like Franz Bosch had the same experience as Franz Bosch, even as recently at the Broncos, maybe three or four years ago. He came and spent three days with us and he just kept picking things up. I don't know, he's one of the world's greatest, but he kept picking things up and I was thinking, how is he seeing that? I've been doing this for 10 years and I cannot see that at all. Well, he's been doing it a lot longer, I suppose. So I think that's a big one. And then, you know, another probably ties in with that. Another important quarter like is experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. And and so when things go wrong often, um, I, I think referring to the high pressure environment you talk about, mm. um, you have to be willing to accept things aren't going to work all the time. Um, I think data helps in decision-making um, to bring a sense of confidence to decision-making in high performance. I'm um, oh, sorry, in high pressure environments. I think it also helps um, helps coaches as well, but technical coaches, like if you, if you say, yeah, mate, they're really strong, you know, or yeah, mate, I reckon they're super fit, you know, cause you always get that question. Any S&C coaches who work in sport, we laugh when I say this, but the coach, you know, we get beat in the last 10 minutes, two weeks in a row and the coaches will be, cause you can't help it. It's human nature. Like, do you reckon they're fit enough? And you're sat there thinking, yeah, but you haven't done a fitness test since the second week in preseason or, you know, the middle of preseason. You're thinking, are we? Like, there's no worse feeling. So again, some of the methods that I'd looked at is by by training at certain uh, game intensities throughout the week, there's some really strong evidence that that helps you remain uh, fit enough. And then you get a bye week and you test fitness and sure enough, yeah, you are from, a, from an aerobic 
perspective, you were as fit as you thought you were. And so that became a really good way of checking it kind of on a weekly, if not fortnightly basis. Are, are we actually training at an intensity that maintains that level of fitness we've developed in preseason? Because there's nothing worse than that question from a coach. And if you're hand on heart honest, you're not really sure because everyone in the media is questioning, like, are they fit enough? They've lost two games and all. They just can't concentrate at the back end of the games. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy mentally for players. Whereas yeah. if you can say, hey, look, here's the evidence. We know it makes sense. You are fit enough. It means you yeah. can actually focus on the problem, which might be concentration. Or it might be that your players aren't good enough. They need to improve. It might be that the tactics are wrong. It could be anything. It could be the weather. Mm-hmm. You know, and the player slipped and because we don't know. Mm-hmm. So I think that helps in those, and that's as high pressure as it gets for a strength and conditioning coach. And the, and the coach says, are they strong enough? Do you think they're strong? You know, um, I think that definitely helps. Co- coach's eye comes down to knowing why. Um, and then the other one I would definitely say, and this requires humility, is um, if you're ever the strong- uh, strongest, Christ, if you're ever the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Mm-hmm. I think it's super important in high performance departments to have people around you who are better than you at whatever they're doing. And um, I- I've been lucky enough to be in, in those environments a lot like. You know, think about someone like Dan DePasqua at, uh, at Melbourne Storm, best strength coach I've worked with. He's an absolute gun. Um, also probably the most humble man on the planet. Uh, you'll never hear him say he's good, but, but he is uh, exceptionally good. I just constantly learning from him about strength. I still bring him today a couple of times a week generally and talk about strength training. He's constantly fascinating me. And then I was lucky from a sports science perspective, I had a guy called Bob McCunn who we brought over Never worked in rugby league before. That was exactly what I wanted at Melbourne Storm. Uh, sorry, at Brisbane Broncos. He came over and um, came from uh, Hearts of Midlothian uh, Football Club in Scotland. Uh, he, he interviewed exceptionally well. And he, he came over. I wanted someone who could who was really, really good in sports science. He had a PhD and, and whatnot, um, but didn't really know rugby league particularly well. I wanted him to think differently about the game and see what sort of data he could collect. Um, to show progress. And he, he did an amazing job there. And then similarly, Carmen Colomer, who took over from him, I think he's over in Perth now, ended up at, was it Philadelphia 76ers after the Broncos. They, they're all genuine, and there's lots of others, but genuine experts in their field. And they were way better than me at their jobs, like way better. And, and so it's really important that when you've got a high performance department with people like that, and again, Storm are exceptionally good at creating environments like that, um, as are lots of other clubs, by the way. But when you've got an environment like that, then you've got to think um, in high-pressure environments, you know the foundations that your department is built on. Yeah. And I think that allows you to answer the questions that you get hit with inevitably that, that make it a high-pressure a high environment. Yeah. yeah, to wrap it up, but perhaps you've answered already, but with those practitioners um, that really stood out uh, as experts in their field from a high-performance manager's perspective, what is the sports yeah. scientist, like a successful sports scientist sort of look like for you? I guess what are their big rocks, so to speak, in terms of really assisting the high performance manager and I guess the high performance team uh, from a physical preparation point of view? Yeah. So from a sports science perspective specifically, I think in this day and age, it's the ability to manage big data sets. So I think if you're a sports scientist and you only really use Excel, it's probably worth looking into things like R, um, even into SQL uh, and, and database uh, SQL query and database. I think data sets are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, now I can definitely re- remember Excel crashing on a number of occasions and killing 30 minutes of work that I'd done. Um, but I think that's a really, really important one for sports scientists. 
I also, this is just a personal preference, but I like sports scientists who, who, who train or who have a passion for training themselves. And yeah. um, I think that really helps them relate to what it is, say, that we're doing in the gym, what it is that we're doing on the field. And um, I think that's quite relatable. It's not necessarily it has to, but I, I find the better strength, there's better sports scientists I've worked with have a passion for training themselves in, in whatever it is. And um, I think I have to have an ability still to, um, to visualize data as well. I think that's super important because really data is only as good as the insights it generates. Um, I, I love sports scientists and, and Bob and Carmen, both exceptionally good at this, who, who account for error or account for um, lack of reliability as well, because it becomes more um, reliable as a data set. I think that, that's super important. And then clearly the, the ones who are truly elite are the ones, in my opinion, who, um, who are able to come at you with lots of ideas. So, you know, things like I've been watching the game and I've, Bob used to do it all the time. He'd sit, I love those people sitting in the team meetings and listening to the coaches talk. Because remember, our job is to help them, help to create players that do what the coaches need or are capable of doing what they need. And I used to love, Bob would come up with the most random things from football, you know, that he'd just think of and he'd say, hey, have you thought about doing X, Y, Z? Because, you know, Seeb's up the front there, he's saying um, he wants them to get off the line square. Thought about doing this, or we could potentially look at tracking that. Players never hear about that, so you're not data obsessed. It's not all we ever do is track, you know? But but what you've got then is a sports scientist looking at how he can use data to answer a question on whether we're getting better or not, or whether we're doing what the coach wants. So I think that kind of critical thinking and confidence to speak up, which again is dependent on the environment that, that you create, I suppose, in high performance. But um, that'd, that'd be kind of the, the main things. And again, back to where I started with this whole conversation. For me personally, I think at, at the elite end of sport, you've, you've got to be you've got to be obsessed with with getting better. Yeah, I've also mate. Moving to the last section and, and start to wrap it up, but it's been massively valuable for uh, speaking for myself and no doubt for the listeners. So thank you for for sharing. Uh, and providing you know, not only um, your philosophy is a big believer that success leaves clues, but also stories and, and, and in, in a practical setting. Um, but for, from a uh, personal point of view, um, or sorry, from a professional point of view, what is a pet peeve, whether it be sports science, training, conditioning industry perspective, or athletes that, it, that you know, might not pack up their weights? What is, what's a pet peeve that sort of fires you up <laughs> when you're on the job? I've got a few. Um, <laughs> I, I reckon probably lack of preparation. Is one that yeah. really annoys me. Um, meetings with no agenda, just yeah. what's the point? And, and I got a quote I've stolen from someone. If you leave a meeting without something to do, to do you shouldn't have gone to the meeting. Mm. Just, you know, meetings for meetings sake, you know, long hour and a half video sessions. I just don't know how valuable they are, but lack of preparation from a staff perspective, I think it's, um, you can't have that. It's not high performance or elite. And then, yeah, if you've got a meeting, it's nothing more frustrating than when you want to add value in a meeting and, the leader of the meeting hasn't even taken two minutes to send out an agenda on what we're going to talk about. So you can be prepared. Yeah. I think they're, they're simple things that, um, that shouldn't happen. Yeah. So they sort of go hand in hand when you say lack of preparation, you talk about staff members preparing sessions like warm-ups, conditioning blocks and gym I, I'm, programs. I'm probably referring to, uh, to meetings. Um, yeah. And, you know, if you if we're going to discuss, um, you know, the loads from last week and, and then we get into a meeting and but I haven't sent out an agenda, yeah, and so we get to the meeting. I said, "How are the logs last week?" And the sports scientist saying, "Oh, yeah, he's trying to go off memory. He's not prepared to answer yeah. the questions I'm asking, but it's my fault because I didn't tell him. I should have been very clear. 
And that's just process. That's just organization. So that's why it's a pet peeve for me because, you know, that's what we refer to for the players. So that's an effort area, mm. really. It doesn't take, mm. doesn't take talent to write an agenda or to give someone notice. It's, it's just an, it's an effort area from a staff perspective. It's mm. something where um, we, should, we should be better prepared and all it takes is um, effort. And from a, for those, like when you're running a meeting to make sure that every staff member that's in it actually walks away for like, yeah, that was productive. How do you sort of wrap them up and, and I guess how do you sort of, do you send it so that you, there's a pre-email or WhatsApp message with an agenda and, and what happens sort of yeah. post or how do you wrap up your meetings to make sure it's everything yep. on the same page and aligned? Yep. So agenda is uh, what we're talking about, who is primarily the person we're going to ask that question so they know we're coming to you and um, mm-hmm. feel the need to surprise people in meetings and then um, end every meeting with um, either what have you learned if it's that type of meeting or what are your next steps? I think that's super important. So for everyone in the room, like what are your next steps? And, um, you know, it should be very rare, let's say, occasions where someone says, oh, yeah, not from me. Otherwise, that's on me because I organized the meeting and I've wasted that person's time by bringing them in. And, you know, there's no, they've not got anything to do after the meeting. I could have just given them that information in an email and saved yeah. them. They could have done 20 minutes helping the program in another way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. What about your favorite way to spend a day off? Well, I just bought a new house, well, ish, nine months ago. And um, at the minute, it's actually grafted in my garden, which needs a lot of work. And I'm too tight to pay for it or can't afford it. So it's basic laboring. I wouldn't say it's my favorite way, though. I'd say my favorite way is, um, is definitely watching my kids sport. And so I've got two daughters, um, passionate about female sport in my role now. I'm trying anywhere I possibly can to help Um improve opportunity there but um i reckon as a as a parent there's nothing better than watching them compete and, and learn life lessons especially i I'm, I'm really strong on um again it's all down to growth mindset sort of philosophy but i'm really strong on them ever i, I hate them ever the, being perceived as the best player in their team for example like my youngest mm. daughter is a very good football player i don't ever want her to be in a team and i'm t- happy to tell her where she's the best in the team because it's just that's no good for them and mm. um, constantly putting, I love seeing challenges put in front of them. I don't wouldn't say I love seeing them fail. I actually hate it, but I always stop myself and, and press pause and, and understand how do I help them get through this challenge now? Because, you know, there's no question whatsoever that those failures build resilience. Yeah. And sport is, is a phenomenal metaphor for, for the rest of life and how do you get over it? And it also instills that work ethic that I think my parents instilled in me. So it's hard in this world compared to, you know, 30 odd years ago when I was a kid. But um, yeah, I think that's my, that's my favorite way. That's what makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. When I see them, you know, nervous in the car on the way to a game for, or to a trial. And then I love when they do get picked, but you know, on the occasions when necessarily they don't get picked, um, mm-hmm. I'm able to say, right, well, how can I help them learn the lesson from this? And mm-hmm. always relate it back to what they could have done better. So unconditional ownership and, and effort areas will, did you really try your best? Mm. You know, and if, if either of those, um, there's an improvement area, then that's what we focus on rather than, you know, the selectors pick their son instead or their, their daughter instead or whatever. Yeah. This is more of a selfish question, but being a young parent myself, like um, my eldest son, he's only three and a half and daughters, like I mentioned, off airs five weeks. So they're a while off playing competitive sport. But did it take a while for you to shift your coaching, if you call it, or parenting method 
uh, like those drive homes after a disappointing loss or whatever it might be when you've been in an elite environment for so long or did it actually help you because you've got you know, the coach's eye, you've got empathy with those experiences? Like how did you sort of juggle the, the parenting with, your, with an elite coaching background? You have no idea how pertinent that question is, um, and I'll <laughs> tell you why. Because I'm, I'm used to, because in, in elite sport, you get used to, I didn't realise it until I left, but you do, you get used to watching games and kind of being silent. You don't commentate through games because you're watching often, I used to do an orange shirt in the NRL, for example, you're watching like one play behind often, see if anyone's injured, whether you need to go on and help them, or you're watching effort areas because you're a physical performance manager and they really matter to your job and that sort of stuff. Um, and so you get used to watching games in silence and mm. constantly watching effort. That's all I ever watch is effort, effort, effort. I'm not looking at the fancy kid who scores in the top corner. And so with that in mind, I find it really challenging <laughs> With parents who haven't had my background, it's not their fault. Wonderful people find it hard to watch games where they see different things to me. They see the kid who dribbles through and then loses the ball and say, great work. And I'm like, actually, should have passed to his teammate (laughs) because it's a team. uh, I find that challenging. And the second thing and why it's so pertinent is um, I'm, I'm a genuinely average coach with my own children. From a strength and conditioning perspective, I, I find it, I've never coached young kids before and mm. that young and I find it at uh, 13 and, and 15 I find it insanely challenging to coach mm. them and yeah I can imagine and it's it's a it's a complete Tough. negative on me it's totally my fault but I find it really really hard to flick the switch and and accept that they can't do stuff or that they have a little whinge or I'm like oh I just can't handle it yeah and so I don't <laughs> I don't do it I, I guide them I give them lots of opportunity and it spoils my relationship with them necessarily. I reckon if I if I treat them like an elite athlete, now, and in fairness to them, Jack, they've I was in twenty two years in elite sport. You know, they've they're only thirteen and fifteen. They're, they're only until I left two years ago. Their only um, insight into dad's work was coming into Paramario's training and school holidays, and they were there every day with me, just sat helping cook the barbecue and whatever. So they're kind of especially the youngest one. They're kind of grown up in that world. Yeah, um, and that's brought some challenges too because you know they're they're and it's so weird, but they're <laughs> she kind of yeah, used to I remember once she she pulled up a player at Paramariel's training uh, for missing the line. She was like maybe eight, maybe less actually. She might have been six, that's and great. she said, "Oh, that player missed the line," and he was literally bent over vomiting because because he trained you know conditioning drill, and so that sort of mentality has been a challenge that, for her to accept that that's not what preparation looks like. The kids. <laughs> yeah. So it's been really interesting, but I'm not a good coach of my own kids from a S&C perspective. I think that the technical side of it, because they both, you know, play football and one plays touch footy. I think um, I just coach effort areas. So, you, you know, that's easy. You don't need, you don't need knowledge of the game necessarily to do that. Mm. Uh, it's all about effort areas and yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you, mate. That's a, that's a great insight. Good luck. It's been uh, well, well over an hour, so I appreciate your time and, and sharing with us uh, insights both from a professional but personal with parenting. Uh, like that was a great way to wrap up the podcast right there. So thank you so much for, for tuning in. For, for those um, listening to the podcast that want to get in contact with you, mate, maybe they've got a follow-up question. Is there a place they can get in contact with via email or socials? Um, if so, where, whereabouts uh, is the best place to go? Yeah, probably socials is, is easier. I do like... Um... I do like Twitter, actually. I, I don't post very much, but I, I certainly get a lot of information and, and links from there. I think it's yep. PDEVs too. Yep. Um, but equally, I'm happy to, to take emails. Again, I touched on at the start, the amount of people who helped me. There's guys over here working in the field, Jeremy Hickman's and 
Lachlan Penfold, I think you've got on next week. And I came over and visited them when I was a, an S&C coach from the UK and can't tell you how helpful they were to me, especially Jez being, a, being from England himself. He was an absolute inspiration to me when I was, when I was a young fellow. And um, yeah, there's, there's loads of people who've, who've helped me. So my, my actual personal email is devs, uh, D-E-V-S 4858 at yahoo.com. Happy for anyone to email me there and um, you know, I'll help out anywhere I can. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, for those listening in that might be driving, which I know is quite a popular avenue for podcasting, we'll add um, yeah, Paul's uh, Twitter as well as email address in the show notes. That's easy if you access at the end of once you park the car. But, yeah, thanks again for, for tuning in, mate. Really appreciate it. I got heaps out of it. And for those that tuned in the live halfway through, um, as you know, you can watch the full recording in, on our YouTube channel until we post it in an upcoming Wednesday on our podcast directories. And um, just um, our next live chat is actually Lachlan Penfold, which is next Tuesday, November 1st. So make sure you tune in for that one at 1 o'clock. I'll see you guys then. Thanks again, mate. Thanks, Jack. See you, mate. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian from Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, yeah, game game changes whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with Academy member Rama Davies, the strength conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was you spoke a, a, quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat, um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm. Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah it certainly yeah has been massive for me now, and and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose 
one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, it might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that, in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single minded back then. And, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things. And, um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things. Um, cause you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the prepare like a pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.